Okay, let's get into Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke's gospel, what am I talking about? We're in the book of Daniel. <laughs> Must have been a dream I had last night. I don't know. Daniel, chapter 6. If you have a Bible like mine, it's found on page 725. We like to stand for the reading of God's word. If that's something you can do this morning, please stand or you can just stand in your heart. Begin reading at verse 1. It pleased Darius, actually Darius here, uh, that's probably a second name. This is, this is the great Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, uh, the, the, the Persian king. So it pleased Cyrus to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. These satraps were made accountable to, to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Fascinating to just think about. This great empire... And here is Daniel giving complete rule. At this, the administrators, the Republicans, the Democrats, the senators, the representatives, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against charges against this man Daniel unless it is something to do with his religion of his God. So these administrators, satraps, went as a group to the king and said, may King Cyrus live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any God or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into this lion's pit. It's literally a pit or a cave. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned of the decree and how it had been published, he went home. I want us to know, did what he always did. He does this every day. He went to his upstairs room, where the windows were open toward Jerusalem, three times a day, he got on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And then those men went as a group, and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. And then skip down to verse 15. Then the men went as a group to King Cyrus and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. Of course, they tattled on Daniel. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's pit. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought, placed over the mouth of the cave, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment. The word literally there is without any dancing girls. Being brought to him because he could not sleep. And at the light of dawn, the king got up and hurried into the lion's den. When he came into the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. 
Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his messenger and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. In fact, it literally says, he says, not a scratch was found on his body. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was raised up from the cave, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is God's word. You can be seated. Daniel, uh, at this point in the story, is, is an old man. Commentators put him between the age of 70 or 80 years of age. Now let's just consider Daniel's life thus far. Daniel grew up as a Jew in Jerusalem. And as a, as a young kid, as, as a young teenager, he experienced the trauma of this great world empire coming in, bringing utter ruin to life as he knew it. So we have to remember this about Daniel. Daniel had a very comfortable life as a kid, but he loses it all. Tragedy. Probably lost his family, his home, his homeland. He's deported then to a strange land along with a, a, a select group of Jews. And, and then gathered in, in Babylon with, with elites from all over the world to essentially rebuild the Tower of Babel. To turn Babel into the greatest city the world has ever seen. And how does a, a, a young kid respond to this? How does anyone respond to this kind of tragedy? Tragedy will either make us bitter or it will make us better. In Daniel's case, it, 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 it made him. It formed him. And what we see in Daniel in this book is someone who is remarkably courageous. He doesn't cave to all the social pressures and the social forces that are around him. He doesn't fall prey to the latest trends. He isn't swept away by the, by the latest fads. He essentially lands in the University of Babylon, the world's most prestigious university. He then graduates to the halls of, of, of Babylon's power. And there he is surrounded with all these powerful people, the rich and the famous. And yet in the midst of all these pressures, he remains this constant. He doesn't change. He remains faithful. To God. And I read this and I say, wow, I, I, I want to be like Daniel. I want a church full of Daniels because our world today needs Daniels. It needs for the church to be a community of Daniels. And that's, I mean, when I, whenever I read a chapter or a book in the Bible, one of the questions I always ask, like, why is this chapter here? Uh, why is this book here? And I, I think the reason why, why God has given us this book, the book of Daniel, um, is because Daniel shows us how we are to live in Babylon. 
Because the Bible makes it very clear that Babylon is more than just a place. Babylon in the Bible is, is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for what our world has become. The word Babel and Babylon in the Hebrew, it's, it's just the same. It's Babel. It means confusion. It means chaos. Because we live in a world that is chaos. That is falling apart. And really, I think my generation, maybe even the older generation, and maybe the younger generation, we're, we're told and taught something that no other generation has ever been taught, which has created this expectation that is now devastating to us. And that is that our world is not Babel. Our world is Disney World. And we just expect the world to be Disney World. And that is one of the biggest lies that our culture has bought in. Our world is not Disney World. The Bible tells us, no, the world is Babel. It is chaos. It is falling apart. And really, all you have to do is be an honest person and, and, and look under the veneer just a little bit of, of, of what we call Disney World, and you will see really quickly a world that's falling apart. Everywhere. I don't care where you live. I don't care who you are. It's falling apart. It's Babel. And see, not only does the Bible, well, since I'm on the whole idea of Disney World, anybody follow Hollywood this week? That produces Disney World? And you peel that veneer away just a little bit and the, the reality of what really is there gets exposed and all you see is corruption and greed and sexual perversion and a culture of rape and pedophilia. Be careful, Christian. That just reflects who we are and what our culture has become. We live in Babylon. And the Bible doesn't just tell us that we live in Babylon, but explains why our world is Babel. And, and explains it really when you go to the first story about Babylon in Genesis 11, where they build the Tower of Babel. Um, the Tower of Babel is the human race's attempt to reach the heavens apart from God, to do life apart from God. Let's build a tower, they say, to reach the heavens, to make a name for ourselves. And see, this is the Bible's answer to us or explanation as to why our world is always falling apart, why it's in this state of decay. It's because we insist on naming ourselves, of being self-namers. And remember, a name in the Bible is, is not just a label, but, but a name is, is, is who we are. It's our significance. It's our uniqueness. It's our identity. And every person in this room, every person on the face of the earth, longs for a name. We can't live without this sense of our unique worth and significance that we matter. And we're not wrong for wanting this because we're not just accidents. We're not just uh, uh, forces of, of evolutionary process. We are made in God's image. God fearfully and wonderfully made us. And when God named or made Adam and Eve, the text said 
in, in Genesis 5, verse 2, I made you and I named you. In other words, our name and our identity and our sense of worth and significance and who we are has to drive itself from God. And see, this is the problem with Babel and why Babel is chaos because people insist on naming themselves. We insist on finding our worth, our significance through ourselves, through the towers that we build to make a name for ourselves so we can just say, hey, look at me. Look at my tower. Look at what I have. Look at what I can do. Look at, look at what I can accomplish and achieve. Look at how I win. Look at how smart I am, how beautiful I am. I'll tell you, if you read the story of the Tower of Babel, it never finishes. Because I don't care how high you go with money and with fame and success and power and influence and winning and achieving, it will never be enough and it will always break down in the end. It will always fall apart. And that's why so many people today are internally breaking down. It's why families and marriages are breaking down. It's why there's moral and spiritual breakdown in our culture. It's why our institutions, there's breakdown. There's breakdown in our government, in our places of work, in the places we go to school, in our cities, in our nation, in our world. It's Babel. It's falling apart. Because everybody is desperately trying to make a name for themselves trying to find their own unique worth and significance in something other than God. Where do you go to get a name? Who are you today? And the Bible keeps telling us about Babel throughout, and it tells us where where Babel is going to end. And you come to the end of the story, and in Revelation 18, you, you read about the end of Babylon. It says, O great city Babylon, you say you are a queen and not a widow. Yes, peoples of the earth have been seduced by your sexual offerings, and the powerful are in bed with your whores, and the rich and famous exploit your system for great wealth. But Babylon, your ruin has come, and with such violence, you great city of Babylon, you will be thrown down, never to be found again. That's where Babylon's going. And that's where those of us who are trying to find a name for ourselves in Babylon, that's where we're going. But right now, we need to know how to live in Babylon. How do we respond to Babylon? And see, this is why Daniel is so significant. This is why the book of Daniel is so significant. Not that Daniel himself provides the blueprint, because God is the one who provides the blueprint. It's a blueprint that God provides throughout his book. But Daniel shows us how to walk God's blueprint out in such amazing ways. In fact, the blueprint, I think, that is so on Daniel's heart is, is, is Jer- Jeremiah 29. Because Jeremiah 29, God gives his specific instructions to his people. This is who I want you to be and how I want you to live as you live in Babylon. And God essentially says two things to his people. He says, first, as my people, I don't want you to decrease. I don't want you to shrink back and become smaller. I want you to increase. And and you, as my distinctive people, increase in your distinctiveness. Be holy as I am holy. 
That's the first thing. And the second thing he says is, I want you not to live in the outskirts of this city. Don't circle the wagons within your own tribe. But I want you as a people to move all the way into Babylon. Move all your distinctiveness in. You are the ones that are blessed with my shalom. Bring my shalom into the chaos of Babylon. Pray my shalom. Live it out so that that chaos can become shalom. It's our mission. This isn't just an Old Testament mission. Jesus said the same thing. He said, you're salt. You're salt. Now, salt to, to us is just something we put on food to flavor it, but salt in the ancient world was the refrigerator. It's what they namely put uh, on, on meat. I mean, they literally caked it on their meat um, to keep their meat from spoiling, to keep it from decay. It was, it was their preservative. Now, think about that. Think about what Jesus is saying to us as his people. It's massive. It's a massive call with massive implications. You are my salt, the salt of the whole earth. You're my preservative. You're my my agent to keep the world from going to spoil, to rot, to decay. That's what we see in Daniel. Look at verses 1 and 2. 3 and 4. Daniel chapter 1. I mean, in, in, in chapter 6, he's immersed into the halls of government. He's right at Cyrus's right hand. Right by his side. And there he is. In Babylon. In its belly, immersed. Where are you? Where are we? I love this church. There's a reason why we're in this city. There's a reason why we gather here. And it's not just so we can gather here on Sunday mornings, but we want to, as a church, to to, to move in, to go into chaos together. That's why we're planning a church further into the city. But see, I like what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't just say you're salt, but he also says, as salt, you need to be salty because you're not salty. You're useless to me. And what does Jesus mean by that? Well, think about what salt is. When you put it on your, on your tongue, it has bite. It's like it has, it has pop. It's distinctive. So it's not that God just wants us all the way in, but as we're all the way in, God wants our our lives to have some bite to it through through the distinctiveness of our lives. That's Daniel. I mean, these guys, literally, knowing that Daniel's in politics, like they are. Everybody in politics has dirt and corruption. Amen? Amen? Okay, you're better than me. (laughs) I'm glad you have a high view of our politicians. Sorry I'm such a cynic. They dig, and they dig, and they dig, and they dig, and look at what it says. 
First of all, in verse 3, it says this guy is so distinguished through his excellence. Oh, but we'll, we'll dig. We'll find something. And then verse 4, they could find no corruption in him. No dirt. Nothing to expose. Wow. Now we've stepped into some intimidating stuff. That could be said about me. You'd find dirt in my life. But now we're getting our marching orders. I mean, here, here is this, this, this guy who starts off as a kid. And we already see this in his life. It's, it, 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 it's like he knows the, the, the baton is in his hand. It, his time has come. He has this one measly life to live for God. And now with baton in my hand and with this measly life, I'm going to live it all for him. I'm going to run the race set before me. And he does this as a young person. He does this as a middle-aged person. And now we see it at the end of his life. He's, he has baton in hand. Now, if you remember, when we were in Daniel 1, and, and, and Daniel's a teenager, I challenged our young people. I, I basically said, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Dare to have stakes in the ground. Dare to have convictions. Dare. Dare to go against your, 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 your generation. Dare to be different. Now I'm going to speak to some of the older folk here. Finish the race. Know that the baton is in your hand. Finish. Don't drop out. Don't quit. Keep running. Like Paul says, he says, and this is as he's getting older, he says, the time of my departure is near. I have fought the fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And there's a crown of righteousness awaiting for me. And Paul is right when he says, I've fought the, faith, fought, fought the fight. I've finished the race. Because life is a fight to finish. And we, we, we speak so much about how do we start. And, and so many people start so well. But the real question is not how do we start. It's how do we finish. And I want you to know, like, like I've been having like these, I'll just say this, this I don't want to say an epiphany because that, that's too strong, but my thinking has evolved. So much so that I had a talk with our staff, and our staff is a young staff, and I told them point blank, I'm tired of the younger generation demanding that the older generation get on their page. And young people, there's a reason why there was a response to that. Because they've lived life. And in living life, there's wisdom. Which is why the Bible says, young person, it's not the job of the older generation to get on your page. It's your job to get on their page. And to follow them. And to learn from them. And to become like them. 
But older people, the baton's in your hand. If we're going to follow you, keep your eyes fixed on Christ and finish the race well. Okay? But in this church, the older you are, as your eyes are fixed on Christ, the more honored you are. I want to fight for that. Now what makes Daniel, Daniel? Daniel doesn't need a name. Daniel already has a name. He has a name. His name comes from God. Because that's what God does. God gives us a name. This is why when you read the Bible, God is always naming people. Sometimes he even has to rename them. Jesus, when he called the 12 disciples, it said that he picked them and then he named them. Because this is exactly what God does. He picks us and then he names us. And I want you to know just the the, the profound impact being picked has on a person's life. I see this when I coach, and I, 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 when, I, when I pick someone to play a certain position, they just light up. When I select one of my kids, I need you to do this. I've chosen you for this responsibility. They just kind of, yes. In the work world, when your employer like picks you for, for a specific task, it, it, it has impact on you. Libby uh, grew up with, with her dad, literally, when she was really young. Lib, she, he'd do this before he, she'd go, he'd put her to bed at night. Lib, if I could line up all the six-year-olds of the whole world, all of them, and I could pick just one, you know which one I'd pick? I'd pick you. I've had to compete with that my whole married life. (laughs) Daniel's a Jew. At the core of a Jew's identity is that God picked us. Is that God picked us to be in this special relationship with him and God picked us for a very special task. And they understood the special relationship with God in terms of the best father-son relationship, in, in terms of the best marriage. Israel, though the whole earth is mine, you are my segula, my most prized possession, my, my, my bride and who I'm ravished with. And see, then when you add to this that, that God's people knew why God picked them, uh, because this is important too, um, it, it's, it's not because Israel's so wonderful and elite, because if it was that, then just think about this pressure to perform and to constantly live up to this elite status. But God just flat out tells them in Deuteronomy 7, 9, I didn't pick you because you're so great and so incredible. I picked you for one simple reason, because I love you. And I love you just because I love you. 
See, this is Israel's name. This is Israel's identity. This is where Israel derives her worth, her significance, is that she uniquely belongs to God, that she is uniquely loved and cherished by God himself. This is why Daniel can go to Babylon and not seek to get a name from Babylon. He already has a name. He has God's name. And here's the deal, when you and I allow for God to name us, when we get our name from God and we drop all these self-naming activities and strategies, we can live in Babylon without seeking a name. But if we don't have a name from God, we're going to go to Babylon seeking a name. And guess what? We're probably going to get one. But to get one, we're going to have to sell our soul and our identity in God to get it. And at the end of the day, it's empty. And it only leads to ruin. But boy, when we just know that God has named us, we don't have to build big towers. We don't have to climb the ladder. We don't have to make it to the top. We don't have to try to reach the heavens with our money and our possessions and our reputation and, and, and our family and all of that. In fact, we don't even have to be anxious about all the happenings, whether they're local or national or worldwide, the happenings that are happening in Babylon. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to get ourselves validated by Babylon because we already have a name. And that name that we have from God brings peace, shalom, and rest to our lives. And this is why Jesus said, stop seeking the things of Babylon. Seek first my kingdom. Seek the greater city. Seek the city of God, the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Daniel is doing. Look at verse 10 and 11. Three times a day, Daniel got down on his knees, faced towards the city of God, Jerusalem. And he's praying. He's worshiping. If you want to know why Daniel's Daniel, now we're stepping into the heart of it. This is a guy who three times a day sets his heart on God. Sets his heart on the kingdom of God. Places his affections on God. How often do you get on your knees and seek God, pray to God, place the affections of your heart and the loves of your life onto God? See, this is how God's name gets pushed into us and then how his name is going to get pushed out of us. So we provide space in our lives to seek him and to, to pray to him and to bow to him, to worship him. It's where he whispers to us. Do you know the whispers of God? The whispers that come through prayer, the whispers that come through digesting his word, the whisper, whispers from being in communion with that spirit of Christ that's in us, 
whispers of his love, whispers of his delight, whispers of, Rod, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased, whispers of discipline. I was driving to my football game this past week, and uh, I got one of those whispers of God. God just said, you know what, Rod? You are absolutely wrong. You can't tell your team to hate another team. You can't tell them that. Because I'm at a stage in my life where I find repentance to be such an enjoyable thing. Before the game, I just stood before my players. I already taught him the word repentance. I use repentance all the time. Now, I don't bring God into it, but I explain that repentance. When, you guys, when the train gets off the tracks and you guys get out here, man, it's time for you to feel the joy of repenting. You need to return to the path and, and, and get back on it. I said, today, guys, before we go out there on the field, your coach has to repent. We never play a football game because we hate the people across from us, but because we love the person next to us and behind us. And they're all looking at me like, Wait a second, you're a coach. Coaches don't repent. So I took it further. I said, I'm not just repenting to you, but as a dad, I repent to my kids. As a husband, I repent to my wife. As a follower of God, I repent to him. But see, you'd never know to repent if you're not in communion with God, where God is pushing his whispers into your life and saying, you know what, Rod, you can't do that. Are you a person like Daniel? Because Daniel is not just a morally good person. Daniel is a spiritually transformed person. And the reason why he is spiritually transformed with this spiritual authority to his life is because of verse 11, three times a day, his heart seeks the face of God. I'll tell you, when, we, when, when we're Daniels, and I think this is how we know we're Daniels, we're going to be what Paul says, either this sweet aroma or this stench. And that's exactly what Daniel is in the text. To, to, to Cyrus the Great, he's a sweet aroma. Cyrus loves Daniel. Daniel is exalted in his eyes, but then to all those people around Daniel, he's a stench. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. See, uh, it's just going to come with the territory. When, when, when we are like Daniel, when we are following God with everything we have, when we are distinctive and moving our distinctiveness into, the, into Babylon, the world is going to not like us. And they're going to love us at the same time. And when that happens, you know you're a Daniel, but if it never happens, you probably aren't a Daniel. Now, why is this story here? Because I have to finish this thing up. Is this story here to just teach us all today? Christian, if you have enough faith, 
you will go unscathed through life. Without a scratch. There's a lot of Christians that think that. There's a lot of pastors that preach that. And you go to places like Hebrews 11, the great chapter on faith. And it says, those who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions. That's right there, a reference to David. Quenched the fury of the flames. That's a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who what? So we stopped there. And by faith, those are realities. But we need to keep reading because by faith, there were others who faced jeers and floggings, chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Daniel goes to the lions and is unscathed. But people generations later who didn't bow or worship Caesar went to the lions to their death. Both, in both, God received glory. That's not why this story is here. This story is here to both point forward and to point backward. Because all the little stories of the Bible are really helping teach one great story, the great story of how God is repairing the world and reconciling us to himself. And, and this story, you have this old, righteous man thrown amongst these vicious lions, and he's walking with them, and he's petting them. To point to the future hope that Isaiah lays out in Isaiah 11, or better yet, God lays out through Isaiah when God says, uh, when, when my new heavens and my uh, new earth come, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lay down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. <laughs> That's a powerful picture. Can you see the lion, the lamb? And the child all playing together. And this is the Bible's way of saying that's what the new heavens and earth will be about. There will be no more violence. There will be no more killing. There will be no more hate. There will be no more conflict. For the old order of things have passed away. And until that day, in our life, there are going to be exiles and deportations and persecutions. There are going to be times when it looks like Babylon is the stronger, that the Nebuchadnezzars and the Cyruses are, are really in control. And, and there are going to be times when we as believers are going to be falsely accused. We're going to be thrown into furnaces. We're going to be thrown into, in, into the dens of lions. But listen to me. God is in control. God sits on the throne. And God is using all the pits, the prisons, the furnaces, the lions' dens, all of it to orchestrate his 
wonderful story of repairing the world and reconciling us to himself. We have to know that. And see, this story also doesn't just point us forward, but it points us back to how God is repairing, how God will repair the world. Who is walking with Daniel in this lion's den? You know who it is. He's all over the book. It's the same one who walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, who, who made Nebuchadnezzar himself when he saw this person say, ooh, look, one like a son of God is walking with them. It's Christ. And I want you to think for a second about where the deliverance takes place in this story. It's not outside the den. It's inside the den. Same with the fiery furnace. It's not outside the den. Their deliverance takes place inside the furnace because this is the way it is throughout the story. God doesn't take away the furnace. God doesn't take away the lion's den. God doesn't take away the desert. But he enters it with us to walk with us. So that through our suffering, we could know him and become like him. And see, this story so beautifully foreshadows a greater Daniel. A greater Daniel who will be betrayed by his friends, who will be falsely accused, who will be condemned to die. A greater Daniel who will be thrown into a cave and a stone rolled over its entrance, only to be raised by the power of God. And this greater Daniel Christ, I want us to know, went into a much more fierce and traumatic den than what Daniel did. This Christ went into the den of hell, where God's wrath, for all sin, your sin, my sin, was placed on him. And we can't say about him, not a scratch. Because his body was ravaged and torn open in the den. And why did it have to be this way? Well, Daniel, the name, Daniel. Dan means judge. E, the I is my judge. L is God. His name means God is my judge. And see, the prophets speak of this final judgment day when God's judgment will be poured out on all sin. And the way they describe this, they say it's going to be like a vicious, roaring lion. But for those of us who are in Christ, who have trusted in Christ, who, who get our name from Christ... Our judgment day already occurred 2,000 years ago when Christ hung on that cross. God unleashed his judgment for all our sin, all of our evil, onto Jesus. He stood in our place. He took our punishment. And the only lions that can kill us, the justice of God, Jesus bore those lions. And those lions devoured him. So that we today, like Paul, can say, there is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. That's our name. This morning, the communion table is open for you to repent of all the places that you have found a name in Babylon. Repent. And this is where we come and we eat and we drink the name of God 
that God loves us, that God accepts us, that God has reconciled himself to us through Jesus saying, my body broken, my blood shed for you. Let's repent this morning. Let's pray. Dare to be a Daniel. (laughs) Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. God, we cannot do that in our own strength. In fact, this week I was just like, God, how, how do we get the spirit of Daniel inside of us? And then again, you whispered to me, and you said, "Uh uh-uh, one greater than Daniel has come and has poured his spirit out into us to be like the greater Daniel. God, pour your spirit into us as we eat the food, the meal that you've offered us. In your name I pray. So we gather like this to see, like, how God comes into our our dens and into our furnaces and he delivers us so we get to go out face our dens face our furnaces and enter other people's dens and other people's furnaces with the shalom of God and God as they go out God may you bless them and protect them and have your face to shine upon them God may you be gracious to them and may your shalom Fill them. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Have a great week, you guys.